Hi, welcome to What Happens Next. My name is Larry Bernstein. Each week since the outbreak of the pandemic, I've hosted a conference call to discuss aspects of COVID-19. The discussion follows a unique format. Each speaker only gets six minutes. This keeps the conversation concise, interesting, and informative. After everyone has a, a chance to speak, there's a question and answer period. At the end of the program, I ask each speaker to spend a minute to discuss something that they are optimistic about. Our, final, our first speaker today will be David Barnes. David is a professor of history and sociology uh, at the University of Pennsylvania. David's book, The Great Stink of Paris, describes the public health improvements in 19th century France, specifically the building of Paris' sewer system. I've asked David to speak about the history of public health and make some non-consensus comments about the current COVID-19 pandemic. Our second speaker is Paul Rosen, who is a professor of psychology, also at the University of Pennsylvania, my alma mater. Paul's research has been incredibly broad with fascinating work on food and disgust. Today, Paul will speak about how people can get used to anything. Our third speaker is Chris Niddle, who is a professor of applied economics at MIT's Sloan School of Management. I've asked Chris to speak about his recent research on four unexpected findings about COVID-19 death rates. Our next speaker is Robert Vargas, who is a professor of sociology at the University of Chicago. Robert has done ethnographic and quantitative sociology research on gang violence, particularly in my hometown of Chicago. I've asked Robert to speak about the lack of transparency in crime data. We are seeing a dramatic surge in violent crime and homicides in American cities. I've asked Robert to speak about the role of gangs in this crime surge and what is happening out there. We then next turn to the discussion of the monuments controversy. Our first speaker in this segment is Sandy Levinson from the University of Texas Law School. 22 years ago, Sandy published a book entitled Written in Stone, Public Monuments and Changing Societies. It seems that this monument controversy is both longstanding and a global issue. Sandy opens his Written in Stone book with the destruction of Russian monuments after each regime change. I've asked Sandy to discuss his views on who should decide how to use public space. Is it always political? Who gets to decide? And how do we adjust with different and changing opinions about the use of this public space? Alan Guelzo is one of the top living Civil War scholars who currently teaches at Princeton University. His most recent book is entitled Reconstruction, A Concise History. I've asked Alan to answer the following questions. Why do monuments change over time? And who decides if they can stay or must go? Our final speaker today is James Campbell, who is professor of U.S. history at Stanford. I've asked Jim to discuss why some monuments should be removed from public space. That is our agenda for today. In future weeks, I am particularly excited about next Sunday's What Happens Next on August 30th. This will be a special episode on young adults. We will have nine young adults discuss for three minutes each their personal challenges in a COVID world. We will also have a college admissions advisor and a psychologist to discuss trends in youth mental health. In two weeks, we will have a special episode on education. This will be a wide-ranging conversation on teaching methods, how to use testing data, how to help foster kids, religion and education, and teaching calculus to college freshmen using a hybrid or an online model. All right. 
The introduction is over. Let me turn the call over to our first speaker, David Burns, a professor of, in the history of science and sociology department at the University of Pennsylvania. Go ahead, David. All right, thank you, Larry. Um, I have a few thoughts about the um, current pandemic that uh, emerge indirectly out of my historical research. I, I wanted to start by quoting a fellow historian of public health, um, Christopher Hamlin from uh, Notre Dame. This is from his book, uh, Public Health and Social Justice in the Age of Chadwick. Wrote, where there is knowledge of disease prevention and of the factors that sustain life and health, the map of the availability of those factors is the map of the rights that exist in that society. I think that's uh, one of the most profound things ever written in the history of public health, and I think it's directly apropos um, today. So in all of the public health messaging surrounding this pandemic, I keep hearing germs don't discriminate. And I'm sorry, um, it's just not true. Germs do discriminate. They always have discriminated. And unless we change something pretty fundamental about the way we approach public health, they will continue to discriminate. Epidemics, I should say at this point that I'm anticipating that Chris may take issue with some of my points, and I welcome, I welcome the conversation and, um, uh, yeah, look forward to his, his remarks. Um, epidemics are always deeply social phenomena. They're social in their origins, they're social in the course that they take, and they're social in their effects, their immediate effects and their longer-term effects. I think it's helpful to think of epidemics as uh, something like social x-rays, which reveal pre-existing fractures or weaknesses in a society. You could also think of them as, as sort of like heat maps, which call our attention to certain places, uh, both you know, uh, geographic locations, but also socioeconomic um, circumstances that need attention and need resources. Epidemics are usually also inequality accelerators. They certainly reveal inequality, but they also intensify it in many cases. I think it's misleading to call this a coronavirus pandemic. I see it as a pandemic of weakened immunity. When I talk, when I talk about immunity, I'm not, um, I'm not talking about some kind of genetic predisposition, and I'm not talking about the kind of disease-specific immunity that comes from a vaccine. I'm talking about the kind of um, non-disease-specific constitutional immunity that comes from essentially living in a healthy environment with access to basic resources. We've heard a lot about the kind of people who are vulnerable to COVID-19. Uh, they have pre-existing or underlying conditions, including asthma and other respiratory illnesses, high blood pressure and uh, diabetes, among others. We talk about these so-called pre-existing or underlying conditions as if they're exogenous variables, essentially just part of the natural environment in which the virus occurred. But they're not natural and they're not exogenous. These are human-made conditions that are the product of specific public policy choices and they can be mitigated or even eliminated by us through making different public policy choices. Why are these 
so-called underlying conditions so much more common in the U.S. Uh, than in other wealthy nations, and also, by the way, more common in some of the less developed nations that have also been ravaged by uh, this pandemic. There are, um, there are many reasons why, but they include, above all, income inequality, um, but also uh, environmental racism, unequal access to adequate housing, unequal access to healthy food, a food policy that's essentially been uh, designed by and for agribusiness and food conglomerates. Um, also, a factor that's not, I think, sufficiently appreciated, a kind of chronic toxic stress that builds up in the body over a lifetime and is the, the product of, uh, among other things, economic insecurity, fear of chronic violence, including uh, domestic violence, and the lack of any kind of meaningful uh, self-determination with respect to education, um, with respect to careers, with respect to being able to have a say in one's own living conditions. Uh, and, and the final factor, uh, the final reason I would point out is the absence of a social safety net that is the bedrock of all successful welfare states. Um, it seems to me that our most urgent task is to address these pre-existing social conditions. And uh, yeah, lots more to say, but um, uh, I'll stop there for now and look forward to hearing um, what everyone else has to say. Great, David, thank you. Uh, just a quick note to my speakers. Uh, one of you guys does not have a mute button on and we can hear some breathing on the line, uh, if you can take care of that for us. Okay, um, our second speaker is Paul Rosen. As I mentioned before, Paul, uh, is a professor of psychology at Penn, um, and he's going to talk about how people can get used to anything. Paul, please go ahead. Thank you. A common example goes like this. John is searching for his car keys under a streetlight at night. Mary asks, where do you think you lost them? John says, over there, pointing to a dark area of the street. Mary says, then why are you looking here? And John says, because there is light here. The more precise advanced sciences, biology or physics, are under the light. The less advanced science, psychology, is harder to study and is relatively in the dark. But it is often where the problem is. I will illustrate this with a few examples, often with reference to COVID. Antibiotics and vaccines are great, but you have to take them. For influenza, less than 50% of Americans take the vaccine. And for COVID, only about 50% say they will. Many people with heart disease don't take their daily meds. Very little money is spent on research on the psychological behavioral side. Daniel Kahneman, Nobel Prize winning psychologist, in his book, Thinking Fast and Thinking Slow, described two often competing systems in the human mind. System one is fast and intuitive. System two is slower and more rational. A simple example. If you offer adult Americans a piece of chocolate, nicely crafted so it looks like a dog poop, and the people know it is made of chocolate, most refuse to eat some. The intuition is the image equals the object. If it looks like a dog do, it is a dog do. 
This makes sense in the world in which we evolved, where images or artificial versions of real objects rarely occurred. The findings of our senses are intuitive and real to us. The findings of science are more abstract, and these days they are often mistrusted. Vaccinations hurt, and there are no prompt signs of benefits, just reports, reported results by scientists. In the COVID era, more than ever before, we are exposed to the daily findings of infectious disease scientists. We are not taught how science works. A single finding or study is not a fact. Scientific consensus is produced by many studies over years, a converging pattern of evidence. We are not taught what evidence is. One quarter of my introductory psychology class at Penn, an Ivy League school, confuses evidence and proof. What are the most durable findings in psychology is adaptation, hence my title. After repeated exposure to something, our reaction to it is usually decreased. This is obvious for a bright light, but it is also true for most experiences. Surprisingly, young and old people report about the same general happiness, even though objectively, old people have more health problems. They get used to it, and their daily level of discomfort becomes their baseline from which other judgments are made. Most people get used to permanent paralysis of their legs or prison. Most people, when thinking about quarantine, think about the first day, not after a week. Two years ago, 60,000 Americans died of influenza. Unfortunately, nobody seemed to mind, wear masks, or avoid crowds. We got used to that risk, as we do to all of the risks, for example, of automobile accidents. Adaptation does not always hold. Philadelphia has free public transport fare for those over 65. I have been experiencing this for 18 years, but I still get a kick out of it when I get on a bus. So we can't explain everything. What system one set of reactions has to do with contagion? If a dead cockroach touches a favorite food, almost everyone will reject the food. They say it is because they are worried about germs on the cockroach. But if you do the same thing with a heat-sterilized cockroach, you get the same aversion. You only need a brief one-second contact, contact of the cockroach with your food to accomplish aversion. This is called dose insensitivity. And when Americans are asked how many COVID viruses would have to be in their lungs to give them a 50% chance of getting the disease, more than half say one. It's actually a lot more than one. This is dose insensitivity. Finally, our intuitive system one is not inclined to think in terms of probabilities. It likes to divide events into bad versus good, healthy or not healthy, for example. Americans will pay much more to reduce a serious risk from 1% to 0% than to reduce the same risk from 2% to 1%. Lay people think the riskier something is, the fewer benefits it has. I don't think experts believe that. The Internet is loaded with risks and benefits. So we need to educate people to understand their intuitive systems, to understand the methods of science, to know the facts, and to be able to deal with uncertainty. That's a big change for education.
but we have no choice. Thank you. Thank you, Paul. Okay. All right, we now move um, to Chris Niddle. Chris Niddle, as I mentioned, is a professor of applied economics at MIT Sloan School of Management. Um, he's recently done some work on COVID-19, and he has four unexpected findings about COVID-19 death rates. Chris, go ahead. Great. Thanks, Larry. Um, let me, um, so Larry asked me to talk about a paper. Let me describe a little bit of what that paper does and what it doesn't do, and then I'm going to get to, I'm going to highlight two of the unexpected results. So what we do in this paper is we effectively correlate daily death rates uh, across counties in the U.S. with four uh, types of variables. So the first are socioeconomics and racial composition variables. Uh, the second are county-level health variables, such as diabetes rates and so on. The third are modes of commuting, so how people got to work uh, pre-COVID. Uh, and then the fourth are, are weather, climate, and pollution variables. And let me let me highlight two two important points. So the first is that we estimate correlations, and one of the one of the things that we learned during this pandemic is the important distinction between correlations and causal relationships. We're seeing that right now on a number of uh, therapeutics and how some people are interpreting correlations as causal relationships, and that might not be the case. Um, so although we would love to be able to estimate those causal relationships, uh, it's often very difficult. Now, the value of our study is that those correlations can sort of point policymakers and health officials into the right directions as to where to look uh, and uh, focus future research and attention in those directions. The second is um, what our study does, which uh, many don't do, especially the ones that you see in, in uh, the media, is that we're estimating what are, what are called conditional correlations. So what we're doing is we're measuring how death rates in, in counties correlate with the given variable, holding fixed all the other variables in our model. Um, and let me give you an example why that's important. So many of you have probably heard that death rates are highly correlated with uh, the share of African-Americans in, in a given county. Um, and, and we actually find that as well, but what we find is something slightly different than that simple correlation or that simple statement. So what, we're, what we can show is that African-Americans have higher death rates even after you hold fixed things like income, population density, diabetes, smoking rates, and so on. So to David's point, I know he was hoping I would disagree with him. I'm actually, uh, I think this is evidence of his point, which is that the higher death rates among African Americans are partially due to differences in income, differences in where they live and diabetes and smoking rates. But what we're finding is there's something in addition to all those things that are also leading to higher death rates among African Americans. And that's why we, strongly encourage uh, policymakers to look into things that are not in our model, like insurance rates and diabetes rates and income, because there's something else out there that's driving a correlation between African Americans and high death rates. And I think all of the points that David made, I think, are, are things that policymakers should be looking into to try to explain what, what is left that's outside of our model. So I already, that's the first sort of unexpected result. So I sort of highlighted that as well. 
So let me just quickly uh, point to the second one, which I think is, is also important, and then I'll stop. So one of the other strong, strongly, strong correlations in our results is how people get to work and whether they get to work at all and death rates. So what we find is that um, counties that rely more on public transit use have much higher death rates. And that public transit correlation is stronger than the driving to work correlation. So people that drive to work or counties that where you have lots of people driving to work also have higher death rates. All of this is relative to telecommuting. So effectively what we can show is that there's an, an one correlation which is just getting to work at all. And you could explain that by the fact that you're around people while at work. But then there's this stronger correlation which is you're getting to work via public transit. And that difference one might look into as being, ex or as explained by the added risk associated with riding public transit. And that might guide public policymakers uh, into how we run public transit systems and what has to change post-COVID. Post so those are two. Um, there's more, but I, let me stop there and hopefully the, the others come up in, in conversation. Sounds good. Okay. Um, our next speaker is Robert Vargas. Uh, Robert is a professor of sociology at the University of Chicago, and he has been doing uh, work on gang violence in my hometown of Chicago. Robert, why don't you start up? Great. Thanks for having me. Um, so what I'm going to talk about today is based on research that I've been doing on trends in homicide in Chicago, New Orleans, and San Francisco for over the past century. And I thought I would just start with some ideas on why violence is spiking right now in the city of Chicago. And right now, Chicago is on pace to have a homicide spike that is amongst the highest it's ever seen in its history. Um, and in our historical research, we've found four time periods when homicide has spiked. So once in the 1920s, once in the 60s, once in the 80s, and another in 2016. And one of the striking similarities across between all of those time periods and what's happening right now are that you have, one, a legitimacy crisis where, where citizens have a fundamental lack of faith or distrust in government in addition to the police. Second is, is severe economic hardship. And third, um, which goes in line with, with number two, is um, our informal economies. And so just as an example of how these forces manifest, recently there was a, a murder in the Gold Coast neighborhood, uh, which rarely happens in Chicago. Which, and uh, the Gold Coast is one of the more affluent parts of the city. And uh, it was a rapper who was murdered for having posted an insulting video to a rival rapper on the internet. And while this all may seem senseless to us, uh, researchers like my colleague uh, at Stanford, actually, Forrest Stewart, have written, have conducted research on how gang disputes have moved online with, um, with uh, rappers having YouTube channels and posting content on the YouTube channels, and by getting more subscribers, they're able to generate some income from this enterprise. And so, and so what we're seeing actually is a, is a major transformation and shift in the ways that folks hustle to make money in, in highly impoverished neighborhoods, and those conflicts are spilling over all over the city. 
Now, it's hard to, get be, to give a much more detailed explanation for what's going on in the city because detailed data on homicide are really difficult to, find, to get access to. And what's really important to recognize here is that there's a difference between detailed homicide reports of individual cases and aggregate homicide statistics. The bulk of what researchers today analyze are aggregate homicide statistics that are essentially counts of the number of instances in a neighborhood or in a city. What I'm talking about in terms of what researchers lack access to are the, the hand or typewritten homicide reports by police officers, by detectives that provide characteristics of the victims and the perpetrators, but more importantly, all of the context of the conflict that led to that homicide instance. And access to those reports are crucial because a, a legal historian, Lee Beenan at Northwestern, uh, digitized all of the handwritten homicide reports in Chicago from 1890 to 1930 and found that in that time period, 36% of those homicides were cases of husbands killing their wives or parents killing their children. And so when you think about that, that means that a large portion of the homicide in, in a time period where most folks attributed to the mafia was due to reasons that went far beyond anything that police departments or city governments were focusing on at the time. And this is a problem that extends to uh, our understanding of gangs right now in 2020 in Chicago. As the Chicago Police Department has no standards for identifying or entering gang members into their uh, database, which means that our knowledge of gangs is loaded with inaccuracies and, uh, and lack of reliability, which makes it, again, hard to get to the root of the problem. And to wrap up, um, I think one of the major roots of this problem is the fact that uh, cities, not just Chicago, but city governments require researchers to sign data user agreements. And so in the, in the, in the email that Larry circulated, I attached a copy of one that I acquired through the Freedom of Information Act. These are crucial uh, because it shows that only, it, it, it's, it's really troubling because it shows that only a handful of researchers have access to this really important data. And these data agreements disincentivizes the researcher from reporting, from reporting results that are unflattering to the city. Because researchers are afraid that if they publish something that is going to make the city look bad, they're going to lose their data and their exclusive data access. The, and this leads to a problem of data becoming weaponized by the city, where uh, historically, and this, this is some of the work that I've been finding, um, the mayor's office and the police department have used this data arrangement to deflect responsibility when homicide increases, but to take credit for when homicide declines. And just to wrap up with one last point, um, in terms of uh, what to do about all of this, I've been speaking with researchers about, the, about how to democratize access to homicide data to a, to a wider and more diverse network of researchers. Uh, diverse in terms of, in, in, in terms of um, discipline. And, be, and this is crucial because without this demo, democratization, we enable Chicago's political culture to define the problems and solutions to homicide. So I'll, I'll stop there. Thank you. All right. We're going to move on now to a completely different subject, which is the monuments controversy uh, in our public space. Um, we're going to start with uh, Sandy Levinson, uh, 
Sandy is a law school professor at the University of Texas. Uh, he's written the book, Written in Stone, The Meaning of Public Monuments and Whether They Remain or Go. Um, I would uh, I'd turn it over to Sandy. Sandy, why don't you get us started on this topic? Thank you. <clears throat> Let me say that the book you mentioned, which was in fact written originally in 1998, came out in a greatly expanded second edition in 2018, partly because so much had happened, not only over the 20 years, but quite literally in the two years before publication, because the book really is supposed to come out about six months or a year earlier and with a shorter afterward, and it ended up having 20,000 words afterward uh, because so much is happening. So one thing you asked at the beginning is, are all public monuments political? The answer is yes, with the key word public, that what I'm most interested in are not monuments in people's front yards or it, at their grave sites, though those raise extremely interesting questions in themselves. But I'm interested in what I call sacred spaces, like state capitol grounds, city hall grounds, uh, central public plazas, um, things like Lee Circle in New Orleans, where it is not private citizens who ultimately have the authority to put it up, put them up, even if political scientists you know, would quickly agree that you couldn't explain why Lee Circle or other monuments go up without paying attention to uh, interest groups, um, people with money and things like that. But we know through reading the newspapers that even a well-organized and relatively well-off group cannot capture state capitol grounds or Central Park in New York for their favorites unless it goes through public authority, um, whether it's a state committee, city council, or if we're talking about, um, say, the U.S. Capitol, um, U.S. officials. So what I'm interested in is, first of all, it is the case, and there can be no serious dispute about the fact that it is the case that great changes um, in um, socio-political reality bring about changed public landscapes. Going back to ancient Assyria, conquering armies tear down monuments, the winners put up new monuments, uh, not only because they wish to pay homage to their particular heroes, but by capturing public space. They're also very importantly engaging in political socialization so that to use an example uh, I'm fond of using independently of what I think about it, the Ronald Reagan National Airport that replaced the Washington National Airport was not simply Congress controlled by Republican Party wanting to say that they thought well of Ronald Reagan, but airports are you know, sources of 
in the old days at least, of um, you know travel by literally millions of people, including lots of youngsters, and they're going to be uh, either interested in or just pick up, even without asking explicit questions, that Ronald Reagan is a national hero. Because if he weren't a national hero, why would be naming our premier airport after him? Uh, LaGuardia Airport. Um, you know, at a particular moment in time, almost every New Yorker not only knew who Fiorello LaGuardia was, but wanted to memorialize him. JFK used to be Idlewild Airport. Um, it changes after the assassination. So I am very, very interested in who goes up and who comes down. You mentioned that I begin my book by talking about the fact that St. Petersburg had become Leningrad. Um, uh, Actually, it was Petrograd, then Leningrad. Now it's back to St. Petersburg. Uh, Stalingrad became Volgograd. And the question is, whether any of us genuinely oppose that, uh, do we believe that somehow or other the communists who changed the name to Leningrad have some right that it should be Leningrad forever and ever? Or is it fitting that when communism crashes to an end, or when we thought it had crashed to an end, but in fact it has, when everyone thinks of Putin, he's scarcely trying to reestablish um, Leninism uh, in its old-fashioned sense, uh, that they change the name. What's wrong with that? Um, the quick soundbite for my book is, is it Stalinist to tear down a statue of Stalin? Uh, some people, particularly historians, so we will be very interested especially in what Professor Welzo has to say. Some historians or preservationists have the belief that once something is up, <clears throat> it ought to remain forever. This simply violates one of the first things we learn if we study history, which is, as I say, that monuments go up and they come down, and that reflects the changing history, the changing culture. Heroes become villains, villains become heroes. Um, or we discover new things about people who had been heroes and we now villainize us. So since we're talking about public health, uh, let me end by talking about Marion Sims, somebody so almost nobody knows about. He is sometimes called the one of the founders of American gynecology. He did brown, groundbreaking work with regard to fistula. Vaginal, vaginal fistula and trying to provide uh, ways to, um, to alleviate that really dreadful, dreadful disease. Um, and he got a statue in front, I think, of the New York Medical Society on Fifth Avenue around 110th Street. Uh, he was, you know, an esteemed man within certain circles. It turns out that some of the experiments he did in the 80s, 1840s and 50s were on unesthetized slaves, uh, enslaved persons. Um, that is unacceptable for a variety of reasons. And 
a couple of years ago, his statue was removed from a place of honor on Fifth Avenue to his burial place, either in the Bronx or Queens. I don't remember. Um, But at every level, we are being asked and legitimately asked, whom do we choose to honor and why? And whom should we choose, in some cases, actively to dishonor, but at the very least to stop honoring in public places paid for by our tax dollars that convey this sense that all of us agree, not only that Marion Sims is worth honoring, but that Robert E. Lee is worth honoring, or John Calhoun is worth honoring, or I suspect that Professor Guelzo might have some things to say about Woodrow Wilson. Um, But this is what I'm interested in. And the one thing I'm absolutely confident of is that I might well be writing a third edition because this problem is never, ever going to go away. And in fact, it's becoming more obvious all across the world. Sandy, thank you. That was great. All right, now for something completely different. Um, Alan Wozo uh, will talk to us about why monuments change over time and who decides if they stay or go. Um, Alan, go ahead. Sure, Larry, thanks. Um, It's an odd moment uh, that so much energy is being devoted by by so many people to attacking statues. Uh, But this would not be the first moment that uh, statues have become the target of political wrath. Uh, One of the most famous images from the Hungarian uprising in 1956 is the decapitated head of the statue of Joseph Stalin. And I think that that a lot of us, many of us, can remember watching in live time the pulling down of a statue of Saddam Hussein in Baghdad in 2003. So perhaps there is some logic in using statues as surrogates for the crimes whom the statuesque committed. The difficulty is that there's no easy rule to follow about defining or establishing that surrogacy for, as Sandy put it, for what goes up and what comes down. In fact, if there was an easy algorithm that equated statues with crimes demanding obliteration, Uh, Then, where are the petitions on Twitter for the removal of the monuments of the Whiskey Rebellion in Western Pennsylvania, or for the closure of the Door Rebellion Museum in Rhode Island? I mean, both of them are dedicated to incidents of treason and perhaps even alcoholism. Uh, Or why do we tolerate a monument to the Donner Party in a park in California? I mean, doesn't that suggest a commendation of cannibalism? Now, the obvious answer to posing such whatabouts is that nobody today cares about the issues associated with the Donner Party or Thomas Dore. Nobody looks at the Donner statue and thinks barbecue. In fact, there's a sign there with instructions for picnickers. We imagine that monuments are devices to fix historical memory and to keep the focus of the present 
on the past and keep it clear and unambiguous. But statues, and, and this sounds strange to say this, statues mutate. What begins as a monument metamorphoses in, over time into a memorial, and from there into a marker. And by the time something becomes a marker, the emotional power originally invested in it becomes simply a historical footnote. And it's this process from monument to memorial to marker which has defanged the potential implications of the Donner Party statue, but which had not erased the crimes of Stalin or Saddam Hussein. The cases which worry me most are the ones in which the statue topplers are not merely discovering offense where none has been for years, but even worse, pretending to find offense where none ever was, like the Thomas Ball emancipation statue in Washington. It's this latter category, finding in statues uh, a malevolence that never was there in the first place, which bothers me the most, uh, sometimes because it's just the equivalent of road rage, and sometimes because it's really an exercise in the will to power, like book bonfires, uh, something which I'm afraid may not be long in coming, because, and this is Orwell's rule, if you can show power over memory, you can assert power over life. Now, what may help as we try to sort out the problem of statues is a decision tree, which can allow some measure of reason and lawfulness to interpose itself. And it could work like this with five questions. First question, does the statue commemorate an individual who inflicted harms on a living person that would be actionable in a federal court? If so, remove the statue. If not, let's move on to question number two, which is, did that individual order the commission of capital crimes, slavery or human trafficking, genocide or terrorism, as defined by the International Court of Justice, or incur direct responsibility for them? If so, remove the statue. If not, next question. So on to number three. Did the individual have a specific connection to the location of the statue? In other words, was the person born or raised there, or did a momentous event in their life happen there? If not, remove the statue. If so, then think hard about what kind of event this was and whether it merits a statue. And if it does, all right, then go on to question number four. Is the statue used as an active venue for promoting capital crimes, slavery, genocide, or terrorism? Now, the police data should tell us what we need to know about that. But if there is a provable line of invocation connecting the subject of the statue and the actions being conducted around it, then remove the statue. If not, go to the next question, number five. Did the individual undertake specific acts to mitigate 
the historical harms done. Now, by this point, I think we're pretty close to concluding that a statue probably could stay, but only after this question with this caveat. Itemize those mitigations on a plaque at the statue's base and do it clearly. Now, this is not foolproof. None of these guideposts will yield obvious or easy answers. That's not the point. It's that a reasonable process will take us along in the direction we need to go far better than impulse. What's more, a reasonable process will tell us a lot about ourselves, and I hope good things, maybe in fact tell us more about ourselves than about the statutes. So a decision tree, some thoughts on statutes. Thanks for the opportunity, Larry. All right, our final speaker, also on monuments, Jim Campbell, U.S. History Professor at Stanford. Go ahead, Jim. Uh, thanks, Larry. And uh, a lot of what I'm going to say will, I think, be in the spirit of what we've just heard. Uh, given the limited time, I want to uh, set up just a couple of historical contexts for helping us think about uh, the most salient issue right now, Confederate uh, Civil War monuments. And I'll try to end with a provocation or two that uh, might propel us into the conversation to come. Uh, before warned that I'm not going to start by taking any kind of general position on tearing down or preserving statues, not least because I don't really have a general answer. For me, uh, these things depend on the particulars of different monuments and memorials uh, and the positions I take, I have to confess, uh, sometimes depend on who I happen to be arguing with at the time. I'm certainly not a person who feels like we need to preserve monuments for their own sake. Uh, I have no principled objection to removing monuments that honor people and things that we no longer regard as honorable. In the spirit of Professor Levinson's remarks, uh, I was just at the University of Alabama in the old biology building there, which now houses the Honors College, is Josiah Knott Hall, uh, uh, named in honor of a uh, pro-slavery physician uh, whose book, Varieties of Mankind, famously argued that black people are not only a separate race, but a separate species. To me, that is probably not uh, uh, an honor that we want uh, to, to you know, erect on a building that our students are learning in. At the same time, and this is in keeping with the comments we've just heard, I do worry about the process by which decisions are made. I also worry about where this process ends. Uh, we are humans, after all, and our pasts, both individual and collective, include elements that are gracious and honorable, as well as elements that are grievous and horrifying. Uh, if we only honor paragons, we are not going to have many statues. Um, frankly, that might be a good thing. Anyway, let me start with the first context, and that is just to remind people where these Confederate and Civil War monuments generally came from. Um, there's a considerable, really an excellent literature on this issue, and I think a lot of its insights have now become public knowledge in the context of recent debates. Most or at least many Americans now understand the role that Confederate memorials and monuments played in the consolidation of so-called lost, co lost cause ideology, an ideology that was part of a concerted campaign to shift the memory and meaning of the Civil War away from themes of slavery and emancipation 
which manifestly were the primary cause and consequence of the war, to things like states' rights uh, and the gallantry of ordinary soldiers. People are also increasingly aware that most Confederate monuments and memorials uh, were not built in the immediate aftermath of the war, but a generation later, in the years between 1890 and 1915, which not coincidentally was the same period that saw the violent restoration of white supremacy in the southern states. Uh, I want particularly to uh, you know, underscore that last point. The monuments that were raised in this period on campuses and courthouse squares all across the South and indeed across portions of the North as well were meant to do far more than merely honor the Confederate dead. They were props in a sweeping political counter-revolution, a campaign that included not only the erection of monuments, but the rewriting of textbooks, also the overthrow of duly elected state and local governments, the formal disfranchisement of black voters, the use of the criminal justice system to command black labor, and the formal adumbration of legal segregation, all underwritten by the terror of lynch law. As it happens, I have a kid, a daughter, who is in graduate school at the University of North Carolina, which was home, at least until recently, to one of the most prominent of these, the uh, statue of Silent Sam, the Confederate Sentinel standing over McCorkle Place, the main campus green. The speaker at the dedication of Silent Sam in 1913 was a man named Julian Shakespeare Carr, uh, well-named a Confederate veteran, who in his speech praised uh, UNC student legions not only for their violent serv uh, their service in the Confederate Army, but also for their role in the violent overthrow of Reconstruction, a campaign that in his words saved the very life of the Anglo-Saxon race in the South. He went on to explain how he, on his return to campus from Appomattox, had horsewhipped a Negro wench till her skirt hung in shreds after seeing her speak insolently to a white woman. Reading a text like that, I think, makes it far more difficult to maintain that these statues are merely uh, expressions of heritage, uh, innocent of any uh, racial meaning. A second context that I'd like to talk about, which really has to do with the question of um, why have these become controversial now? In other words, the historical context of our own moment. I think there's a lot of proximate causes, and uh, part of it is the way in which, and this again speaks to the previous speaker, uh, the, they have been mobilized in recent years by uh, white supremacists, people who are trying to use them for pernicious purposes. The photos that Dylan Roof posted of himself online prior to his murderous rampage of Charleston's mother, Emanuel Amy Church, the Unite the Right march in Charlottesville, where we saw Confederate flags mingled with Nazi swastikas, a march that was precipitated by a debate over whether to remove a statue of Robert E. Lee. But I also think there are some deeper explanations here. Uh, no time to get into it uh, in detail, but I think what we are living through in the current generation is a transformation in the language of rights. For the last two and a half centuries, rights claims have typically been articulated in the language of liberalism, a language that is both individual and universal. I, as an individual, as a human being, have certain unalienable rights that exist irrespective of the color of my skin, my sex, and so forth. It seems to me that in certain quarters, particularly of the left, uh, 
those kinds of rights claims are no longer seen as cutting edge, and they're increasingly uh, replaced by rights claims cast in the language of recognition and demands to have the collective identities that we cherish acknowledged in the public sphere, including our collective experiences, I might say, especially our collective experiences of suffering and victimization. Again, we can talk more about where that comes from, but I think the point is that in this kind of intellectual and political climate, symbols that celebrate or denigrate become extremely salient. Not only monuments and memorials, but the names on buildings, what goes in or out of museums, and so forth. Finally, let me just close with a kind of brief uh, provocation about you know, whether we should be doing this. Um, probably the most frequent criticism one hears of the current vogue in toppling monuments is that we are unfairly uh, judging people in the past to present day standards. I think I'd put that question in a different way. What standard are we holding ourselves to? It's easy enough to point an accusatory figure, finger at someone in the past and in the process to pat ourselves on the back for our own superior wisdom and morality. But what do we do then? What's changed? What's our next move after the monument has been toppled? I mean, give Julian Shakespeare Carr and his contemporaries their due. They cared about monuments not simply because they were interested in controlling the memorial landscape. They were playing a far bigger game. They understood that historical memory, the stories we tell ourselves about who we are, where we come from, what we value, why the world looks as it does, powerfully shape the ways in which we conceive our political possibilities and obligations in the present and future. If this current exercise is to have meaning, in my opinion, it has to be because it alters the matrix of political possibility. We need to think in similarly broad terms. It is all well and good to topple Silent Sam from his perch in North Carolina, insofar as that helps to fashion a more inclusive and wel welcoming campus community. But in a state like North Carolina, a state that continues to deliver a second-class education to many of its black children, that indulges voter suppression, that diminishes black political power through the nation's most grievous system of racial gerrymandering, a system that a federal court recently described as targeting black voters with almost surgical precision. It seems to me that there's bigger work to be done than toppling monuments. Thanks so much. Great. All right, I think we now open this up for question and answer. I'm gonna first uh, focus, continue to focus on the monument issue and then go back to the other speakers. All right, uh, Sandy, let me start with you. Um, what did you think of Alan's list of criteria for um, knocking down or removing monuments? Uh, and how does that criteria differ from, I'll call it a more haphazard way that um, Saddam Hussein or the St uh, Stalin statues came down? Should we follow our impulses or not? Um, and what do we want to do with it? I know that you've written about uh, the Lost Cause statue at the, in front of the Austin Capitol building with a, a number of choices of what to do. Can you take us through um, your criteria of, of how to handle these sort of problems? Well, two, I hope, quick responses. First of all, though I'm a lawyer, I really don't believe there are any satisfactory rules or algorithms. What I liked about Alan's list is that it is a list that 
really invite structured argument, but there is no reason, and I'd be surprised if he disagreed with me on this, there's no reason to believe that we would necessarily agree, even on our conclusions, even if we agreed on criteria. Woodrow Wilson is very interesting in this respect. He won the Nobel Peace Prize. On the other hand, he did literally everything he could to resegregate the United States civil service and the United States government. He was a vindictive and mean-minded man toward Eugene Debs, unlike Warren Harding, an underrated president in my book, uh, who commuted the sentence. Um, and I think people of good faith could disagree with regard to the Wilson example. But the other response is, I would be thrilled to serve on a committee with either Alan or Will or both of them in which we would talk long and hard about all of the examples they put forth. I'm a graduate of Duke, and Duke recently changed the name of its Julian Carr building, where I'm sure I took classes in the 1950s and 60s because of the speech that he mentioned. The real issue, I think, is to what extent these decisions will be made by more or less academics engaging in what Daniel Kahneman called slow thinking, or will be made by politicians who will be putting their fingers up in the air and trying to figure out what will sell in next week's election or next week's um, controversy. And, you know, at that point, I am not very optimistic about the decision-making process. What we have found, and I'll take Virginia or Tennessee as examples, is that there is a big, big fight between cities and state governments. Because it turns out, not surprisingly, if you think about it, Charlottesville and Richmond, or Nashville and Memphis, are considerably more liberal than the states of Virginia and Tennessee. So one of the things, and this is true also in Alabama, with regard to Birmingham and Montgomery, so one of the things that the state legislatures in Virginia, Alabama, and Tennessee tried to do is to take away decision-making authority from the cities. This is actually also Son of Sam, um, or Silent Sam, rather. Um, the ultra-Republican legislature of North Carolina has done whatever it could to seize control from the University of North Carolina with regard to control of its space. So we're talking not only about abstract criteria, but also ultimately whom we want the decisions to be made by. And I think the three of us academics are much, much closer in our views than apart whatever disagreements we might have, than to a lot of politicians, whether of the right or the left, 
who really think quite differently from the way we do. I want to go back to, Sandy, one of your points that you made about Ronald Reagan Airport and LaGuardia um, and how it gives esteem to those individuals. Um, I would be shocked to find out that Mayor LaGuardia is still taught in any, even a New York City classroom. Um, why do you think that these things have such appeal? Um, I would be also very surprised to see if Dr. Sims was, when people walk by it every day, whether they would even know who he was or what his relevance was. Why do you, you know, think I'm, that they're so important? You know, I agree 100% with Alan. And in fact, I quoted my book, Robert Musel's book on Vienna, where he says, there's something truly pathetic about monuments because they're put up with the belief that they will actually mold the future. And sooner or later, and often if it's sooner, nobody has any idea what this monument is supposed to be about. Uh, with LaGuardia, I suspect that a number of children every year ask their teachers, who is this guy LaGuardia? And the teachers at least have to have an answer. And I think LaGuardia has retained a good enough reputation that the teacher won't hem and haw and stumble around the way he or she would if somebody were to ask, who is this guy, Nathan Bedford Forrest, who was one of the founders of the Ku Klux Klan? Um, I also think you know, LaGuardia retains its name because all hell would break loose if you tried to figure out who it would now be named for. JFK got the airport because he was the martyred president in 1964, and we were an extraordinarily different country, and nobody in New York was really willing to say, you know, he was a mediocre president, and why in the world are we memorializing him? You never would have renamed Dallas Fort Worth Airport after JFK in 1964. Uh, so I think LaGuardia doesn't ruffle any feathers, and it's just easier to keep him or O'Hare Airport. Uh, I'm confident that far fewer people know who, I think it was Robert O'Hare, but I'm not even sure about the first name, who he was than Fiorello LaGuardia. I, can I ask a question? Um, this is about something in psychology, which I've written about called negativity dominance. It's that negative events count for much more than equivalent positive events do. So, for example, I've asked students, consider a murderer. He admits, he admits to have murdered someone. How many lives would he have to save or she have to save individually to, at risk to his or her own life in order to equalize for the negative, for the murder? And the answer is roughly 10. I mean, the average is 10 people vary all over the place. So the point of it is that you, if you have something negative in your life, it counts extraordinarily highly, and it makes for great difficulty in this business of monuments. So, for example, in Philadelphia some years ago when they were uh, excavating for expansion of the uh, Independence Center, they found George Washington's slave quarters. 
and there was a big fuss made about whether we should, you know, feature that in the, in the, or, 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 or low key it. And even in the African American community, there was a lot of dispute. But my point is that Washington had slaves, and so did Jefferson, and that's not good. No question about that. But how do you put that up against their contributions? And it's very difficult to do this because people are imperfect and they make mistakes. Yeah, that's, that's the Woodrow uh, Wilson problem. I'd be interested to know what Adam thinks of Woodrow Wilson in Princeton. <laughs> yeah, but Woodrow Wilson, of course, had, a, had a, a long, continuous set of acts. It wasn't a bad thing he did. It was a bunch of, it was a bad policy that he put that, forward. So that, that's a little different from just calling some, somebody a name, by, uh, which was a mistake, or something else like that. Sometimes it's little things like that that can ruin a career. Well, you know, it's interesting that uh, the Wilson one is an interesting example, uh, you know, that Princeton, in fact, devised a decision tree of the sort that Professor Rizzo proposed. Um, and what was fascinating to me is to see the way in which a number of the decision trees that people had devised here at Stanford as well for how we thought about these things and how we would make these decisions have recently been quite overwhelmed by political events. Um, and so, you know, the notion that somehow we can hermetically seal this off uh, from political processes, however much we might wish to, I think is just, we're, it will never happen. I want to respond oh, really quickly to, if I may, just to the Liberty Bell thing, because the Liberty Bell uh, controversy, the Independence Hall controversy, embodies something that I really want to throw out there that I think is in the spirit of what a lot of us have been saying. You know, we tend, I think, to think of monuments as assertions, as impositions, as one generation telling another generation what they who they are and what they should value and to me the most compelling uh, monuments and memorials are those that are interrogatories that are questions that do not seek to impose meaning or value but invite reflection and compel us to think about who we are and what we might become uh, James Young a scholar who works I think has written a couple of brilliant books on monuments and memorials calls this the counter monument and I think it, you know, the Liberty Bell Interpretive Center is a really wonderful example of that, in my opinion. Um, they discovered that you know, where the Liberty Bell was going to sit quite literally sat atop the foundations of a slave quarters. And um, initially, the National Park Service, it was talk about ham-handed, said you know, that they weren't going to change the design because they didn't want to confuse visitors with uh, contradictory messages, which obviously was kind of not a very good answer. What they eventually did was they turned the Liberty Bell Center, they incorporated the, that history into the center and into the design of the center. And instead of the Liberty Bell being this kind of symbol of, uh, they talked about the way in which different groups of people had struggled to appropriate it, the way in which abolitionists and advocates of women's suffrage and so forth had basically made the struggle for liberty a question, a struggle. And I think that's, you know, if we're going to erect monuments, um, you know, I, would, I think that's the direction we should be thinking in. We should have the same humility about our own time. And we should um, ask questions rather than uh, impose value. Yeah, if I can jump in for one more moment. Um, the National Park Service deserves tremendous credit for what they've done at what used to be 
the George Armstrong Custer National Park. It's now the Little Bighorn National mm-hmm. Park in Montana. That if you go there, which my wife and I did, I think about four years ago now, you find monuments not only to General Custer and to the Sioux, but you also find a monument to the Crow Indians who were actually enemies of the Sioux and who collaborated, therefore, with General Custer. The the National Park Service ranger gave a talk that would have graced any university in the country in terms of capturing the complexity of that event. And it really did encourage you to interrogate the past and realize that one group's heroes might well be another group's villains. And that 150 years later, you may want to tell an even more complex story. Um, But I suspect that there are lots of people who get upset when they see that kind of genuine attempt to come to terms with the complexities of the past um, at Little Bighorn. But I agree with you. They ought to be opportunities for genuine interrogation. Look, you know, I think this is an example of a, of a kind of deep dysfunction, not just in how we think about memorial landscapes, but in our broader political landscape. Most of the things that we fight about in our country um, are because of things in which cherished, mutually cherished values are intention. And we have to try to do what human beings always have to do, which is try to figure out in particular cases how to move forward, whether the issue is freedom of speech or whatever it might be, the rights of criminal defendants. And I think part of the dysfunction of our politics right now, and I, you know, I, this will not be something I will speak of hopefully at the end of this, is that we've we've really lost the ability to actually operate in that space. We've become almost tribal where people will grab onto one side of that tension and, you know, use it as a club to club anybody else who doesn't fully embrace their side of the polarity. And I think, you know, so in in that sense, what we're seeing play out on issues of memorials, you know, state legislatures making it illegal to move monuments and others toppling them is a kind of microcosm of something broader in our society right now. The only thing I would disagree with you on is the use of the word lost. I think that a hundred years ago, you know, take easy, easiest sort of examples, even 60 years ago, the United States had a much more hegemonic set of elites than is true today. So their tribes, so to speak, were in charge. Those who didn't want Confederate monuments to go up had no say. The great spectacular success story of the United States over the last 60 years is John Lewis. And we will find out if the Edmund Pettus Bridge, named after the Confederate general, will be renamed after John Lewis. But the fact that we're fighting over things like that is a sign of how much less hegemonic contemporary American culture is 
for good and maybe for ill, but I don't think we should for a single second be nostalgic about the old times when all of us agreed that Robert E. Lee was just a terrific person um, or that, for that matter, Abraham Lincoln was simply the savior of our country and the emancipator of the slaves and nothing more need be said about him. Um, we're a different country now, for better and in some ways perhaps for worse. Alan, uh, I want you to jump in. Um, and I'll, I'd like you to sort of expand a little bit on the, the how statues mutate, first beginning as a monument that metamorphized into a memorial and then into a marker. Maybe expand on that. And also, being a Lincoln scholar, what you think about um, about Lincoln? Well, let me give you an example about the mutation process. Um, on the Gettysburg battlefield, there are 1,328 monuments and markers, uh, and they range in size from flank markers for regiments to you know, full-size equestrian statues. Um, some of these, some of these statues are, are, are eloquent pieces of art in their own right, like the monument to the Irish Brigade, a, a great Celtic cross. That's a beautiful monument. It, it could stand on its own in any exhibition of, of, of outdoor sculpture. Then some of the monuments are just a little bit weird. The monuments of the 42nd New York is an Indian chief and a teepee. It's the kind of thing that makes you scratch your head and wonder if the creators of the statue got the wrong memo about the wrong war. Um, that is until you unpack it and discover that the 42nd New York was funded largely by Tammany Hall in New York City. Tammany Hall, all right, that's named for Chief Tammany hence the Indian chief and the, and the teepee. It's strange. It makes people scratch their heads, but there's an explanation, even if it is a, a somewhat tortured one. So you run this gamut uh, from the sublime to the almost ridiculous. But let me take a particular example about this movement of statues. The 84th Pennsylvania has a monument on the battleground of Gettysburg. It's not very far away from the huge Taj Mahal-like Pennsylvania State Monument. In 1889, when that monument was dedicated, the principal speaker at the dedication uh, was a veteran of the 84th Pennsylvania. Uh, his name was Thomas Merchant. He'd been a captain in the regiment. And in it, he gave a blistering oration, praising the Union cause as the preservation of true Republican government and the salvation of Republican government for the rest of the world. Well, that was very powerful stuff. So what are we looking at in 1889? We're looking at a monument to the sublime righteousness of the Union cause. Children come, grandchildren come, and the enthusiasm of that has pretty well gone with the original people who put up the monument it moves into being a memorial. And the grandchildren of the 84th Pennsylvania, they look at the monument and say, well, that, that, that causes us to remember that grandfather fought in the 84th Pennsylvania in the Great Civil War. Move on two more generations, 
which is to say to our own time. And you find people on the battlefield, tourists on the battlefield, using the monument for the 84th New York to say, ah, this is where the 84th New York stood during the Battle of Gettysburg. In other words, it's a marker. So the movement of this from monument to memorial to marker, even though it's the same statue, even though it's the same material, that has changed. It has become a different thing than what it was originally. And one of the odd parts of this is, and this is only going to be known by people who indulge historical footnotes, the 84th Pennsylvania wasn't even at the Battle of Gettysburg. The 84th Pennsylvania was 25 miles away guarding the supply depot at Westminster, Maryland. They, they were never on the Gettysburg battlefield during the battle. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean we should take the monument down because this is a fraud, this is a lie? Or should, and I don't think it should, or should we simply say, you know, here is, here is something which, which is a marker in the most attenuated sense of the fact that here was a group of Pennsylvanians in blue uniforms who fought with the Army of the Potomac and were part of the Gettysburg campaign. Yeah, that monument has moved. It has mutated and gone through this process. And I think a lot of this, a lot of this is true for a lot of these monuments that we talk about today. I'm sure that when Carr delivered the dedication speech, for Silent Sam, there were a lot of whooping yahoos, only too happy to agree with him. But move generations beyond that, and the statue becomes what to people? Does it really become that? Or has it, in fact, lost all the emotional connotations, and it's simply something that people walk past, and it's a wonderful roost for pigeons? Uh, Let me hi. Alan, this is Rick Banks, uh, Larry's uh, co-host here. Let me, let me ask you a question to follow up on that, because you raise this interesting uh, paradox, which is that these markers, as you say, have become controversial at precisely the same time when we would have expected them to have lost all their emotional power, uh, and hence they should be less controversial. So could you say a little bit more about what do you see as, as the motivation? How, 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 how do we explain... Uh, markers becoming controversial when, by definition, as markers, they've lost the emotional power that should make them controversial. Because it becomes possible, given the political will, to impute meanings, to, in a sense, refresh them by wrapping them in a whole different set of meanings. And a case, I think, that illustrates this is the Thomas Ball Emancipation Statue in Washington. The Ball Emancipation Statue shows Abraham Lincoln standing with his hand outstretched. And at his feet, there is what appears to be a crouching slave, mostly, mostly naked, except for a sort of Tarzan-like loincloth. And that is taken as an offense. In fact, demonstrations back in June stated this offense. Eleanor Holmes Norton, cast this offense into some proposed legislation to remove the statue, because what it said is, this is, humil it, it portrays African Americans in a humiliating po posture, a posture of subservience to Abraham Lincoln, who does not deserve the credit that is being given to him for emancipation. But that is to impute a meaning to that statue entirely opposite from what it originally enjoyed in 1876. The monument, when it, was, when it was dedicated in 1876, was the product of a process which began in 1865 of raising money from freed people 
who contribute, you know, their, their $5, their $3, their $1, their something. They, they, cre- they create a fund of some $16,000 managed by the Western Sanitary Commission in St. Louis. And that pays for the creation of the monument, which is finally installed and dedicated in 1876. The commission that oversaw the dedication was a commission that you would say is kind of a who's who's list of prominent African-Americans of the day, chaired by John Mercer Langston, uh, the founding dean of the Howard Law School. It was the ceremony for the installation was attended by 100,000 black people. And the orator of the day was Frederick Douglass. This was an African-American moment celebrating emancipation. But just within the past few months, an entirely new interpretation and a vivid new interpretation is attached to this monument, which it never enjoyed at the beginning, but it's attached to this monument so that it's lit it up all over again, but with a meaning, a monumental meaning it never had at the beginning. My objection to the people who are calling for the removal of the emancipation group, of Thomas Ball's emancipation group is, is that they have made a dreadful historical mistake. Nevertheless, the anger is there and the statue itself has to be protected now by the Park Service by fencing uh, to keep people from getting close to it, damaging or defacing it. Anyone, just one more thing on Gettysburg. I wanted to just go back to Lincoln's Gettysburg Address for a sec, because there are a couple lines in there that have relevance. Here's the quote. We have come to dedicate a portion of that field as a final resting place for those who here gave their lives, that that nation might live. It is altogether fitting and proper that we should do this, but in a larger sense, we cannot dedicate, we cannot consecrate, we cannot hail this ground. The brave men living and dead who struggled here have consecrated it, far above our poor power to add or detract. The world will little note, nor long remember what we say here, but it can never forget what they did here. I'm focusing on that last line, uh, where Lincoln got it completely wrong, where everyone remembers what was said, but very few actually remember what what actually was done. And in the context of this uh, relationship between those still living and having meaning to that ground and how future generations will view that same ground, um, do you think that that, this concept relates all also to the monument controversy as well? Well, obviously it's connected to it because Lincoln himself has become part of this question and statues of Lincoln have been attacked. Uh, For instance, on the campus of the University of Wisconsin, there's a Lincoln statue which activists have agitated for the removal of. Again, they've done it in terms rather reminiscent of those employed with the Ball Emancipation Statue, I mean, one person asserted, well, we should remove the statue because Abraham Lincoln owned slaves. No, no, I'm sorry. Abraham Lincoln did not own slaves. Where did they get this stuff from? Nevertheless, the assertion is made, the energy is put into it, and you, at at some moments, you you begin almost to to, uh, experience a sense of of fatigue and this was actually alluded to earlier in sort of giving up on the idea that can we really expect the politicians to do anything reasonable, uh, process-oriented, or even intelligent about statues. Um, 
you get to a point where you begin to wonder how often do you have to explain something when what you're looking at really is proof against explanation that what you're looking at is in fact um, an element of rage and impulse and what I call the will to power rather than a rational process of evaluation. I mean, the complexities of this are real. Complexities should make us hesitate. If you did this on the basis of, for instance, well, I'll give you another example. The Tate Gallery estimates that at the time of the English Reformation, about 90% of England's religious art was destroyed. And it was destroyed by people who were well-intentioned, by people who were acting on impulse. They believed there was a direct threat to their lives from the papal antichrist. And so you went on this orgy of iconoclasm. Now, we're, we look back at this over 400 years, and we, we put our, our hands to our foreheads and say, what were they thinking? Because I, the, the great problem about iconoclasm is, iconoclasm feels great at the moment. It satisfies self-righteousness at the moment. But it doesn't, it doesn't wear well. It doesn't have a great shelf life. And when we look back at things like that, we wonder, what, what, what did we lose in the process? Now, I'm not going to try to say that there's a, a lot of statues out there that are such great art. We, we have to save them all, and, and that's the reason for doing it. What I am arguing about is, can we not have a process? Again, there are no guarantees that the process is going to come up with easy answers. But at least, at least, for heaven's sake, can we not go through a process rather than turning this over to what, in effect, functions like a mob? Okay, we're going, uh, we'll be back to monuments in a minute. I wanted to quickly grab Paul Rosen while he's still with us. Uh, Paul, are you still with us? Yeah, yes. Okay, I know I only got a couple more minutes with you. Um, I wanted to go over one of the things you said about how uh, you can get used to anything. You can get used to being in prison. The, the worst day of a quarantine is the first. Um, it seems like the COVID is going to be with us a very long time. And if it is, uh, are these established norms that we're now creating that are different from the past? Will we get used to it? Will we, come, will we be just as happy, um, even if we're not as productive or can't, you know, touch and kiss our loved ones? Well, that, humans are complicated. Let's start with that. Um, so, for example, though you get used to a, a bright light, you don't get as used to a strobe light because it's on and off, on and off. So if you're in a situation where, the, where the, the status is changing all the time, as with the news every day on COVID and so on, it's very difficult to get used to it. What happened with influenza was that, um, you know, it was sort of below the level of attention after a while. So it's, we cannot, generally people get used to things, but there are notable exceptions. I gave you one about the fair in Philadelphia. And uh, it's very hard to say, but one thing that happens is when you have something like we're in now, people discover other things that they didn't know about before. So for example, online ordering from restaurants. That was there before, but people are used to it now. And when we get back <coughs> to full restaurants, people now have another option in their lives, which they learned about because of this restriction. So a lot of things 
will not go back probably because our world has changed and our opportunities have changed. Larry, let me let me just follow up with Paul before he leaves. So, Paul, we, we heard about statues, and I think this is a place where we really want to get the views of a psychologist. And I'm wondering if your uh, research on disgust uh, figures in here uh, with the in the statue debate. And second question is that when these debates arise, as Alan says, it really isn't a process usually, or if there's a process, it's, it's kind of a sham and the issue has been decided already. And part of the reason that issue is decided is because you have so many people who are so outraged, uh, even though they weren't outraged just a year or two or three or four ago, presumably. And on university campuses, when you talk about renaming uh, and taking down statues, you frequently have students who will say things like, I'm, I'm unable to learn in this building, or I, I, I am I'm not psychologically able to you know, come to campus if this is what I have to confront. Uh, whereas, of course, they weren't saying that a year or two or three ago. So what do you make of those phenomena? Well, I would say that one thing is that this is really more political science than psychology, but people who hold extreme views are generally more mobilized more, they feel more strongly about it. So people very strong pro, very strong con are going to put a lot of energy into something. The large middle is, is not so motivated. They have other things to do. There may be other things that they're very extreme about. So we, we are generally moved very much by the political extremes because the energy they put into their efforts is much higher. Uh, now that's only one aspect of the, of the, psychology. I think there, I mean, there's a lot of psychology in the movement, in the monument issue. But I think one of them is that, another one is that people are very poor at putting themselves in other people's position. So they don't like to be in a society in which, for example, women can't vote. So uh, many, most of our major male, white male historical figures before the 1920s were, took for granted that women didn't vote. Now, that's, we see that as unbelievable now, and I personally find that unbelievable. But you have to understand that this was what everybody thought, right. that they were around. So we, we tend not to compensate for that enough. Okay, last, last, last question here. When, when students, though, so I'm, I'm speaking from a university campus, so I've seen this phenomenon a lot. When, when students report that they're so traumatized by having a statue on campus or having a building named after someone that we uh, do not embrace now, is that a trauma that we should think has always existed and we've just been oblivious to it? Or has that trauma been somehow brought into being uh, by changing political well, realities? The answer is both. I mean, first of all, nobody really knows, but certainly people feel entitled now to express a feeling that they may have had before, but, you know, it wasn't acceptable to, to state it. That includes, by the way, being in favor of women's voting in the, in the early 19th century. Uh, so, uh, I mean, so there is an entitlement, there is an opportunity, but uh, that's not the only a thing that's going on. But, it, you know, most of us learn and we adapt to things that are mildly, mildly offensive to us. We just, when you go into a theater, no one does right now, but when you went into a theater, you breathe the air of the person, the stranger sitting right next to you. They breathe it out, you breathe it in. You just get used to it. Um, so people get used to things that might be offensive. 
to them. And then when, when uh, political movements and other things call attention to those things, um, they, they, there's an arousal of interest again. It's really pretty complicated. So I have Campbell, let me, if I can just jump in on a, ask a question also of a psychologist before we lose them. I mean, I think, Rick, your point, I mean, here at Stanford, we're, we're in a discussion about uh, renaming Jordan Hall. And yes, you hear people talk about it as being a traumatic experience, being compelled to study and a building name for a eugenicist. And at one level, I mean, I think your question asks itself, the previous 125 years of Stanford students didn't know this about Jordan, so did not find it impossible to study there. It's the, the unearthing of this history that has animated this. But what strikes me about your question is how easily we use the word trauma. We forget, I think one of the great transformations that's essential to the struggles we're having about historical memory is also the emergence of the trauma paradigm, an idea that that was only, you know, in the 1980s, finally accepted in the American Psychiatric Statistical and Diagnosis, uh, Diagnostic uh, Encyclopedia as a diagnosis, but which is now something that we all routinely invoke. And we invoke it not simply to describe injuries to individuals, which was the original diagnostic sense of it, but we now routinely impute it to collectives, that the society is traumatized, that this trauma is being... Uh, transmitted across generations and that the same kind of therapeutic interventions about unearthing this painful past that have been used to treat post-traumatic stress disorder in individuals also now in effect need to be deployed at kind of national or collective levels. And I would just love to hear a psychologist reflect briefly about the trauma paradigm, which I think is the thing that's lurking beneath all of what we're describing. Well, I mean, no, I, I think you're correct that trauma has become a, something with a capital T. And in fact, many people who experience traumas, including Auschwitz, uh, the big trauma of the 20th century, will recover from it and are okay, and others are not. I mean, so trauma doesn't mean that there's necessarily going to be a, a consequence. It makes it more likely. Uh, you're absolutely right that we have we have talked more about collective trauma. That's become a a thing now, and uh, you know it's it's a social phenomenon. Uh, it's more it's more a social science phenomenon than a psychological one. It is part of our culture. So I have to get off. I'm so sorry, but ahead, um, thank you. Uh, right, bye bye. Right. I'm gonna I'm gonna move to Rob Vargas next and talk go back to violent crime in Chicago. Um, you talked about uh, the lack of transparency uh, as to the police reports, but given this really astronomical increase in violence in Chicago, what do you think is going on? Do you think it is the delegitimization of the police? Do you think it was the fact that the police has been ordered to stand down and has shown uh, the inherent weakness and the facade of how police work is, is really done to control problems? I know we've had some very strange uh, looting going on in terms of just the quantity of people, including uh, Chicago public school teachers who've been engaged in the looting and, and various others uh, who, who you would not consider either common criminals or gang members. Uh, to what extent do you think the violence is the criminal element? Do you think the violence is, is gang-related? And how much do you think it is just an opportunity where uh, violence is being tolerated and not being enforced? Rob, you're, uh, you're, you are on, on mute. 
It looks like I may have uh, lost Rob. Uh, let me can continue on with one of the other questioners. Uh, let's go to, uh, to Chris Niddle then. Chris, um, you talked about the role of public transportation uh, in the higher death rates. To what extent do you think that reflects density and, and people just being closer together uh, and that public transport is a much more important part of city life and high-dense life? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so let me start by saying that we're also controlling for population density. So in the right way to, to view our correlations, as I mentioned in my opening remarks, is that they're holding fixed all the other variables in the model. So the fact that we're controlling for population density means that we, we're effectively I'm getting lightning, sorry. We're effectively comparing two counties with equal population density, but one county relies more on public transit than the other one, and that and that's the correlation that I, that I'm speaking of. And do do you view that to be popular? Do certain communities have greater reliance on public transportation, and may that reflect the greater density and cause the greater death rates? Or is there something particular about public transport that you think? I know you don't want like to use the word causality, but does it reflect uh, the fact that when people are congregated together, that's what's causing this uh, greater death rates? Or are you holding, are you holding, uh, catching the disease uh, different? Yeah, so it would be, again, holding fixed the, the population density. So this, this is in and, a, in and above the impact of population density. There's still an added correlation with using public transit. Now, the reason why it's a correlation and not causal is it might reflect the types of jobs that people uh, that tend to use public transit are in and not necessarily public transit itself. Um, but it, it, we know it's not reflecting population density because or income differences because that those are variables that are also included in the model. And you mentioned um, if you don't mind, Larry, I've got a quick follow-up here. This is David. Go ahead. Yeah, okay. So um, about uh, public transit, I, I think certainly in Philadelphia where I live, uh, public transit users um, skew uh, much, much lower on the socioeconomic scale. Um, and I think that's true in, uh, in large cities generally. Um, Another, I just have a, another thought about correlation, and it's, you know, we, we all know correlation doesn't necessarily imply causation, and um, I just want to point out, you know, as a historian of public health, that uh, public health is based on correlation. It's fundamentally a science of correlation, and some of the greatest breakthroughs in the history of public health have been based on observation of correlation. And in the absence of any specific knowledge about disease causation, going back to um, Edward Jenner's smallpox vaccine, which some consider one of the great, you know, public health achievements of all time, um, it was. In and there are many, many others that I could mention. John Snow on cholera in 1854. No knowledge of the causation of the disease, yet these correlations were actionable. And um, People acted upon them, and in fact, acting on the correlations was effective in uh, preventing the disease. 
Chris, just as a follow-up on the previous point, um, you also show that there was higher um, death rates among African Americans. Um, many people thought that was because they had lower incomes or they lived right. in more dense places. Um, but you've already held those things constant. So, yeah. what what do you make of that correlation? And you know, what do you, what, what should the audience the, the takeaway be? Right. Yeah. So and. And again, to, I think that was David that asked the question. Um, I, look, I believe studies that just find correlations are potentially useful for for reasons that you suggest, but also, as I mentioned, that even if you're not willing to base uh, public health decisions on these correlations, it helps you narrow in on potential causes and you know use your resources more more efficiently. Now, to your point, Larry, about, so it's certainly true that some of the simple correlations that you hear in the media between uh, COVID death rates and African Americans are driven by the fact that on average they have lower incomes and they live in more population density dense areas. But, but what we're finding, and I think is important here, is even after you control for those things, um, including diabetes and smoking rates and healthcare insurance rates and so on, there's an additional correlation there. So that means that although those other variables are there and they are driving some of that simple correlation, there's something else out there as well. And that's where I think public health officials and policymakers can use our study to try to figure out what that something else is. For example, um, what we don't have in our uh, we control for health insurance rates and, and hospital uh, density in the area, but we don't control for the quality of health insurance or the quality of hospitals. So it could be driven by that. Or to David's earlier point, it might be driven by uh, underlying stressors that are more prevalent in African-American communities than in other communities, um, whether that's systemic racism or other variables or other factors. But it, we do know from our study that something else is out there, and that's why I encourage more research to be done to figure out exactly what that something else is. You know, what's interesting about your work was that you were looking for statistical significance in a variety of variables, but some of the variables were, I would say, so much more than the others. Um, and the one that shocked me was public transportation. Um, and could you kind of just give a sense for, like, which ones were – like, was one ten times more important than the other? Was one just a, just barely statistically sure. significant? Like, how much should we weigh the importance of some of these things that still may be within the realm of standard error? Or, okay, it's a little higher, but who cares type of thing? Right, right. That, and that's a great question. Um, so it, in the paper, we have a, a graph that, that not only shows the statistical significance of variables, but the, what I would call the health significance of, of the variables as well. And, and the way we capture that is we, for each variable, we take the range of that variable in our data, you know, so take the, the county that uses the public transit most and the county that uses it the least and take that difference and multiply it by the coefficient. And that tells you, like, if we moved from the lowest to the highest county and held everything else constant, what would be the impact of public transit? Um, I would talk about some of those specifics right now, but the thunderstorm has knocked out my power, so I don't have the paper in front of me. Um, but but what I 
What I will say is that the largest effects were the transportation-related variables. And again, these are all relative to telecommuting. So the impact of public transit in our paper is relative to somebody who's working from home. Um, So, and as I mentioned earlier, public transit use is a big effect. Driving to work is also an effect, although not as large as public transit use. So um, that suggests that just being at work is is potentially a, um, uh, put you at risk. Uh, Diabetes, the impact of diabetes, the average diabetes rates in counties was also huge. Um, And, you know, African-American, the impact of the share of African-Americans was also large. It wasn't as large as diabetes rates or, or the public transit variables, but, but certainly it was medically significant as well. David Barnes, I'm trying to bring you into the conversation. Um, when you, as a teacher of a history of public health, um, is there something about this COVID experience that you would compare that would be different from, let's say, 1918 or the cholera epidemics uh, in terms of the public, the public's response, uh, not so much the political response, but how the public has responded to this particular crisis? Yeah, it's. Um, I think historically this uh, this pandemic is an outlier in several respects. It is. Um, more like 1918 than um, any other epidemic we've experienced. It's certainly not as, um, you know, hasn't killed anywhere near as many people as, as 1918. But, um, but it's, um, it's certainly more, uh, in, in general, in, um, in the case of epidemic disease, Diseases that are the most lethal uh, don't tend to spread very widely or very quickly. And diseases that do spread quickly and widely uh, tend not to be very lethal. So um, 1918 was just the the all-time example of a disease that spread quickly and easily and was highly, highly lethal. And this is um, uh, COVID-19 is not in that league, at least I should say not yet, fingers crossed, but um, uh, but it, it's more like more lethal and more easily spread than uh, uh, other epidemics. In terms of the public response, um, I don't think we've seen anything quite like this. The uh, 19th century and late 18th century epidemics that I've studied most closely evinced public uh, panic, widespread flight, and, you know, all sorts of extreme reactions. Um, But the context, the political, institutional, and infrastructural context of 2020 has, you know, inflected the responses. You know, there you could point to instances of of sort of panic or panic-like behavior, but I don't think that's been the typical uh, response. I think there's a lot of um, denial. And um, one thing I would say is, unfortunately, that this pandemic has in common with many uh, historical precedents is um, scapegoating and especially ethnic um, scapegoating. And uh, that's 
all too common in um, in epidemics historically. And just going back to the history, um, it seemed, at least I'm told, that the 1918 flu was pretty quickly forgotten, um, and only you know a few studied it, like yourself. Um, do you suspect this might be different because of the public's, um, I'll call it, massive response function, and that it will not be forgotten? It will be, it will be I guess, will affect public policy, will affect the history, will affect how people feel about public health differently than the 1918 experience? Um, short answer is yes, I do believe it will be different. It's, um, it's 1918 is curious. Again, you know, truly an outlier in the history of epidemics. Um, you know, it killed more people than uh, any other disease outbreak in history, as far as we know. It's hard to know about the Black Death of the 14th century, but um, uh, but it didn't have a significant sort of long-term impact on um, science or policy. There, I have some colleagues who would disagree, who point to some changes that emerged after 1918, but I think in the big picture, uh, it was mostly forgotten. Partly that's due to the fact that um, flu was and is a familiar disease, and this goes back to what Paul was saying about getting used to something. And um, uh, flu just didn't inspire the same uh, kind of fear um, that uh, cholera did or yellow fever did, exotic um, and uh, dramatic diseases that were mostly unfamiliar. So. I think the, um, if nothing else, the economic consequences of COVID-19 will ensure that it's not forgotten. Um, uh, and I, I just think there's so much, there's, there's uh, political hate to be made. There, there's sort of, there, there are all kinds of stakes um, that, would, that would, I think, make it more likely that people will continue to t at least talk about COVID-19 and the lessons of COVID-19, if not actually act upon their thoughts. Okay, we, we have a, only a few more minutes left, um, but I wanted to come back to monuments for a second and ask my monument controversy specialists their thoughts. Uh, Sandy Levinson had mentioned that, you know, who are the right people to think about whether or not we should keep these monuments in their places? And he emphasized um, academics as being one group that should play a central role. Um, I wanted to question that. Uh, he also said that he thought that politicians might be the wrong people to do it. I, I mean, I personally recognize that politics is very messy, uh, but when you have a political question, why not put this in the center of the political arena? Alan, maybe if you can open up for us, uh, who should be the decision makers uh, or play a central role in, in how to use public space? Well, one of the difficulties in determining that is that so many of the public spaces are owned by so many different public entities. Uh, in Charlottesville, for instance, you had two public entities uh, in conflict with each other. Uh, one was the city council of Charlottesville, and the other was the Virginia legislature. Then a third element enters into it, the Virginia court system. And ultimately, it was a judge's uh, stay, which prevented the removal of the Robert E. Lee statue uh, from the park in Charlottesville where it had sat as virtually the ground zero of the Charlottesville riot in August of 2017. 
So one thing you've got to sort out is who, who owns what, legally speaking. Uh, that in itself is going to create all kinds of problems. Uh, it's going to take a lot of time and a lot of patience to sort that out. It also is going to require a lot of forbearance on the part even of public agencies when you finally identify them, because in many cases, the people who are serving in these public agencies do not have access, or at least easy access, to all of the information which could go into making a, a reasonable and well-formed decision. Uh, again, a legislature, a city council may not be the right people to do this, but a legislature or a city council can find people to delegate it to. We do not have difficulty creating uh, blue ribbon commissions to investigate a number of other questions that beset us. And we have no problem in deferring to expert agencies uh, for their opinions. And in this case, I think almost at once of the National Park Service. Uh, so I, I understand and, and probably uh, share to a greater degree than I'm easily willing to admit the skepticism about the competence of political bodies, but there are ways that political bodies can hand the ball off to people who can form reasonable and informed decisions. That's not, in fact, to say that those decisions are going to be the right ones looked back on, say, 25 or 30 years later. It's not to say even that those decisions might not be just as affected by political or cultural or impulsive considerations uh, than a milling crowd of citizens at random. But it is to say that at least a process has gone through that will reduce some of the odds of unreflective action. And unreflective action is really the thing that we need, I think, to be the most afraid of. I mean, to go back to the example of Lincoln, and I'm thinking here the Lincoln not of the Gettysburg Address, but the Lincoln of his first major address, which was his speech to the Springfield Lyceum in 1838, where one of the things he thought was a singular threat to the integrity of life in the democracy was the temptation to uh, default to mob rule. And he, he defined mob rule in a fairly broad sense. Uh, for him, in that Lyceum address, what was absolutely integral to the survival of a democracy was the rule of law. And one of the things which has concerned me the most in so much of the statute toppling, the statute defacement, has been the tendency to throw law and with it any kind of related uh, reflection uh, to the winds in the satisfaction of the moment. You know, this is a place where the discussion we're having about monuments and the discussion we're having with, about COVID actually overlap quite elegantly. I mean, yes, it does. I, yes. I, 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 I don't quite share your optimism that, you know, that this society has a capacity to tidally hand over decisions to blue ribbon commissions that will consult experts and, and devise policy. Um, in fact, I think that we're, we're seeing how difficult that is uh, in our society dramatically revealed kind of every day. I do. I mean, Larry, I think at the end of the day, I share your, your sense that we live in a democracy. Political decisions uh, are made through a set of democratic means and, um, and that uh, one, one hopes that those and we devised a constitutional system precisely to ensure 
that those that that political decision making was informed, was deliberate, was reflective, and so forth. And and again, I think that you know the monuments are illustrative. The monuments debate are illustrative of something much deeper in our politics. I mean, a really profound challenge to the to the rule of law and to and to ideas about deliberative democracy. And, and in some fashion, what we're seeing play out in the arena of COVID. Uh, is illustrative of it in the same way that the debate playing out in monuments might be. Yeah, I okay. like. Is Andy that you? Yeah, one quick connection between co- monuments and COVID. The point was made earlier today that although you know, in one sense we're all in this together, the actualities of risk and dangers are very definitely stratified. Uh, Speaking for myself and maybe for the rest of the people on this call, um, I'm fine so long as I don't get sick. But otherwise, I'm bearing up just very, very well, thank you. Uh, And that's not true of millions and millions of fellow Americans. I think with regard to monuments, we are talking about what the New York Mayor's Commission appointed a couple of years ago, discussed, and I wish I could remember the particular phrase, but it was something like that we ought to bear equally both the joys and the pains of seeing people honored. So in a pluralistic society, it's simply going to be the case that we're going to see a statue to somebody we don't like, and we have to get used to that. On the other hand, we should also see statues of people we admire. And what I meant earlier by my reference to an earlier age of cultural hegemony is that by and large, large groups of American society were left out of the monuments game, as it were. So every day when they went to work, they had to go by Lee Circle in New Orleans or to realize that, you know, the school, the best school in town was the Robert E. Lee School and stuff like that. And so we really do have to equalize things. And you can equalize either by giving, by building hundreds and thousands of new monuments while leaving some old monuments up or by taking down some old monuments and replacing them with new ones, or in the most utopian sense, getting rid of most public monuments, because in a pluralistic society, they are bound to cause trouble. But I do think that that's the ultimate reality. One very last thing for 30 seconds, I really don't believe that academics should be in charge of making these decisions. What I would say is that you ha- if you had a committee of academics, we would likely ask somewhat different questions and approach them in a somewhat different way. But there are certainly times when I would favor public referenda. It all depends. All right. Uh, it's this point of the show where I like to end on notes of optimism. I'm going to go around the room and ask each person to end on something positive. Uh, David Barnes, can I start with you? 
what did you what do you take away in the current environment that you're optimistic and positive about? Well, uh, as with natural disasters and other um, you know traumatic calamities, um, uh, epidemics often spur the formation of um, kind of emergency informal networks of solidarity. And I think we are seeing some of that with this pandemic. And that's, um, that's reason for some optimism that maybe those networks can um, survive the pandemic. Um, uh, honestly, these days, um, the only real durable source of optimism I have is November 3rd. Okay, thank you. Um, Chris Nittle, what are you optimistic about? Well, that's a good question. So, you know, I'm an economist, and, and economics is known as the dismal science. So we're not, by our nature, very optimistic. But um, let me, I think one potential room for optimism, you guys were drawing the link between COVID and, and monuments. There's also a link in, in many ways, uh, the coronavirus is sort of like climate change on steroids moving very quickly, right? You, you wear a mask, not necessarily to help yourself, just like you reduce greenhouse gas emissions, not necessarily to help your own country. So, and a lot of my work is on climate change. So my hope from this is that uh, we'll be shining a stronger light on science uh, we'll be basing more policy on evidence-based science after this, um, and we'll understand the fact that uh, we're all linked together globally, uh, not just through the coronavirus, but also through climate change. And that'll, once November comes around, lead to large changes on climate change policy. Thank you. Sandy? Yeah, I agree. Um, the optimism is that after January 20th, we won't have a sociopath as president of the United States. Um, in a less rawly political sense, I also agree with what has been said that COVID has operated as an MRI for the class and social structure of the United States and the world. And if we're not capable of learning from what we literally see every day, then I think it's hopeless. But one does have to be optimistic that when you just see the distribution of who is really at risk with COVID, or for that matter, who is really at risk with regard to climate change, maybe that will lead to a more equitable society. Okay, Alan? Well, Larry, I may be the most optimistic of all of the people on the call today because on the one hand, it's true, people love to be told that everything stinks. Um, because it sounds so intelligent. <laughs> but that's, that's just misanthropy. Um, it's right to mythologize heroes, or I meant to say demythologize heroes, and, and sometimes that involves statues. 
it's right to demythologize heroes so long as we remember that they were heroes. The myth of the mindless patriot is not worse than the myth of the cynic who speaks with an automatic sneer. I think we're better than that. And I think we can get beyond that. And I have confidence that we will. Thank you. That was great. Um, Jim, our last optimistic note. You know, I, I agree with what's been said, you know, that like a lightning bolt on a dark prairie at night, what we're living through is illuminating of the world that we live in. And in that, uh, you know, is both uh, an element of terror, but also an element of hope. I think one of the things I'm optimistic about, I'll invoke John Lewis, and someone mentioned him earlier. You know, when Medgar Evers was buried, one of the eulogists at his funeral said, Medgar Evers believed in the United States. We shall now see whether the United States believes in Medgar Evers. And I think one could say precisely the same thing about John Lewis. And what John Lewis believed above all was that the most uh, important form of nonviolent direct action was voting. And I think all of us have in the current situation got a very uh, stern lesson in why voting matters and what can be done depending on who or not done depending on who controls the instruments of state power. And that is the illuminating lesson of the moment that I hope we have learned. And insofar as I have hope, it is that, um, and this isn't just to make a partisan point about our current president, though I imagine you know how I feel about him, but that simply uh, we can reclaim our democracy in a meaningful way. And then when we debate these kinds of decisions, how to make decisions about whether they're about statues or public health policy, we will be a genuine democratic polity uh, making those decisions. Okay, great. Okay, um, that ends uh, today's session. I do want to make a plug for our next two sessions, which I mentioned in the introduction. Uh, next week, we're going to have a very special episode with young adults, uh, how COVID is impacting their lives. We have nine young adults who will speak for three minutes each about their personal challenges during COVID, and we'll have also a college admission advisor and a, youth, and a psychologist who will discuss trends in youth mental health. And the following uh, week after that, we'll have a special episode on education with a wide-ranging conversation. Um, please join us uh, in the next two weeks. And with that, I'd like to thank our speakers for their time and efforts. I'd also like to thank our audience for their participation. Goodbye and have a great day. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you, Larry. You're very welcome. Enjoy. Thank you. Bye-bye.